You're listening to episode 118 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. You're back. I am. I'm back from my my holidays. Yes. How was it? Uh, It was lovely. Thank you. I mean, I can't say we went very far, but it was was nice to have a break away from things. Did some reading, did some walks. It uh, It was very good. Did you miss me? We did, yeah. The podcast just about survived without you, oh. uh, thank, thanks to contributions from Vicky, but uh, <sighs> I'm glad you're back. Thank you, Vicky, for holding the fort there. Indeed. Uh, I did worry it would crumble without me. <laughs> uh, so it's the 14th of October 2020 here in Norwich as we are recording this. Uh, it is still 2020, apparently, Steph. Unfortunately. Yes, it, it just keeps going. <laughs> on and on. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, we've got a really Great episode today talking to Emma Shercliffe, who is an agent, having just set up a new organisation, Laxfield Literary Associates. And the last time we talked agenting was probably Ed Wilson mm. over a year ago now, I think. Was that um, really so over a year ago? I guess it was, I, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. So it's about time we return to this subject. It's something that people are always asking about in terms of how to get an agent and how do you go about applying and uh, sort of when should you do it and that kind of stuff. And uh, Emma is full of really good advice. And it's brilliant because Laxfield Literary Associates is based in Suffolk rather than London for a change. Yeah, and this is something Emma talks a lot about um, when the Common People Report came out and extensively talked about how London is a heavy focus for the publishing industry here. Mm. She wanted to make sure that there was representation outside of London and, and setting up Laxfield Literary Associates was part of that to try and better represent people who are, are not based there and to try and kind of shift some of that emphasis. It's so lovely as well because I'm, Norfolk and Suffolk is, we've got such a great community of writers and readers and publishers that we've got a lot of independent publishers and things like that. Um, we've obviously got, you know, great prestigious creative writing MA course um, at UEA in Norwich, but we don't have any literary agencies. So this is the first to open its doors in Norfolk or Suffolk, I think. Yeah, it's really exciting. And talking to Emma, you know, we've said how, you know, this is kind of hotbed of writers in the area, but at a certain point in in every writer's career in this area, they then have to make this commute down to London (laughs) (laughs) to try and make something of their writing. Um, And it's, yeah, trying to address that slight regional imbalance, which obviously is not unique to the, the Eastern region, but is kind of a, a, a thing that the Common People Report uh, highlighted as being an issue around the UK. Mm. Emma also has had a really fascinating career that's taken her all over the world, essentially, um, before she settled back in Suffolk. And uh, we talk a lot about how that came about and her interest in African and Middle East writing as well, and how representation generally in the industry is so important, both mm. for obviously the writers, but also for the readers on the other end. And something else to note is that at the end of the interview, Emma talks about a couple of prizes that she's launching at the same time as kicking off her agenting. So do make sure you listen through to the end to find out more about those. It's particularly interesting if you're a debut writer. Ooh. Uh, Okay, so yes, here's me talking to Emma last week. Hi, Emma. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Simon. Thank you. So before we get into what you're doing right now and with your your new agency I wanted to go back through your career a little bit just to kind of give a bit of context to where you've come from and 
what the inspiration was behind Laxfield Literary Associates. And looking at what you've done previously, it looks like international work has been a really critical part of your career from the start. Yeah, right, right from the beginning. So I joined Macmillan on a graduate recruit scheme a long time ago now, back in 1997. Uh, and that was a straight into export sales job. So that, that was a really wonderful scheme in that it sort of put you straight into a job. Uh, and my first job was as a, a sales rep in Southern Europe. So I had this wonderful time visiting bookshops in the, well, throughout Italy and France and Malta. In wow. fact, even Israel was uh, part of Southern Europe, <laughs> so we classified it. Um, so that was a really wonderful introduction to the to the industry. Uh, and I suppose, like many people, I'd assumed getting into publishing was about editing books um, and hadn't really considered a sales career. And then, you know, being sort of thrown into that job, it was a, just a fantastic introduction to, to the industry. Um, and... Yeah, you know, much of my career thereafter was, was in international sales because I really got the the travel bug um, from from that first job. Right. Yes, and you also ended up going down a route that was really supportive of African writers as well. Um, I was wondering uh, at what point that became an interest of yours, and was it that a job came up and you ended up going down that route, or was it an interest that you pursued directly? No, um, sort of all all a bit serendipitous, really. I. Um, I mean, from my first job, I mean, I worked for Macmillan for for a long time, um, for about 10 years in total, and I ended up as MD as of one of their divisions. It was a uh, an English language teaching division, but that took me all over the place, um, a lot of work in South America. Um, but, I, you know, I visited an enormous number of countries with uh, with that job at Macmillan. Um, and I was also head of export sales at Hodder for, for a while at Hodder Education. So I had quite a broad uh, experience Work-wise, of um, of sort of international writing, um, but but I'd never worked specifically in Africa, um, and it was really the the African connection came from a posting. Uh, my husband's a diplomat, and we were on a posting in Abuja. In, in fact, it was really a um, you know a, a decision to go there, partly obviously for his job, but also partly because it was a research interest for me. I was doing a PhD at the time, looking at African writing. Um, and it, it was through through that directly um, I became involved with Cassava Republic Press, which is a, an independent publisher set up by Bibi Bakari Youssef uh, in Abuja um, back in 2006. Um, so I was doing field work, uh, si- sitting in uh, their office in Abuja with a small staff there um, and doing uh, what we call in the academic world participant observation um, and then over the time I was there, I became more of a, a participant than an observer in exactly the way you're not supposed to do in academia. Um, and then it was really at the point that um, BB was looking to set up an office in the UK uh, back in 2015 um, that she asked me to to help her to establish the office uh, in London. Um, so it's since that time, since 2014-15, that I've been working specifically with African writers. So initially in Abuja for, for two or three years and then uh, in the UK ever since. Um, but it's, it's, it's both an academic research um, interest. So my PhD is looking specifically at women in the African publishing industry. Uh, and then also, obviously, um, commercially, uh, the, through the work at Cassava Republic, where I was the sales and rights director. Wow, that's such an exciting journey that you've gone on. And I think it sounds like you and your husband both had travel kind of baked into your careers 
it must be quite unusual to get that kind of breadth of experience uh, on, a, on a global level in terms of particularly how the literature and publishing industry works. Yeah, I think it is. Although I must say now it all sounds like a really happy story, but I think it's really important to sort of say that there were definitely points along the way where I felt that I was compromising for his career. Um, and I think it's really important that women say that because, you know, obviously it's great. I've launched this agency. I'm doing my own thing. I feel, you know, wonderful in the place I am career-wise now. But it's it's still incredibly difficult, I think, to, to make things work. Um, I, I really wouldn't have left Macmillan had it not been for him having a job uh, in the States. We went on a posting to, to the US, which of course opened up loads of, of other opportunities for me. Uh, we had a posting in, in Iran previously as well when I um, Macmillan sort of gave me a year of unpaid leave to, to do that. Again, a, a fantastic experience. But I was really, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was really worried. No, actually late 20s by then. I was really worried about stepping off the career ladder. Um, and it, it sounds ridiculous now. Um, but I think, uh, you know, all of these things obviously end up adding to your broad your breadth of experience I guess so I've been very fortunate but um yeah it it, sort of recounting my career history makes it sound a bit more planned than it was (laughs) I think in some ways the idealized version of it (laughs) yeah you know but I think you know the reason I guess I want to stress it because I, I you know I know myself that I've taken real inspiration from women who've managed to make things work despite, um, you know, challenges, uh, whether it's with a spouse's job or uh, trying to combine working and family or, you know, my particular one, which I guess leads us into the sort of the Suffolk discussion is is not being based in London. Um, and there's many women, um, you know, I'm now in my mid-40s, but, but many women uh, in their sort of late 30s, early 40s, peers and, and friends who I know really stepped off the career ladder because they wanted to, to move outside of London or be based somewhere that wasn't so convenient for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think I really did spend the last even five years feeling constantly, oh, I should be in London more. I should, you know, show my face at, at, at things more in London. Um, but, yeah, I didn't want to be living it. Or we as a family didn't want to be living in London. Um, so it's – and I think it's also also being, being rural. So it's one thing to be outside London, and I think it's another thing to be rural outside London. Um, so where I am here, I'm pretty much uh, an hour from Norwich, an hour from Ipswich. So we really are, um, you know, quite, you know, quite a distance even from a from a, a regional centre. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a, a very real concern that if you physically leave London, you're also leaving a career behind. Yeah. For me, it was definitely the case, um, and I, you know, I think that coming coming back here I was fortunate by the time we um when we came back from Nigeria um which was our last posting abroad uh, I was already well into the the plans with Cassava Republic and in a sense because we were a small team um and I was pretty a, a core part of it on, on the UK end uh, that was obviously fine and understood that I wouldn't be in London but I you know I went down uh, twice a week uh, for much of the time sometimes a day a week um often an overnight stay um, to be there and that, that was fine we made, we made that work um, fine but I, I think that w- would not have necessarily been quite so easy had I been at a, uh, at a dif- different company or had maybe less flexibility uh, in, in my working uh, sort of setup. Yeah and that kind of London centric attitude and you know the, the, the need to physically be there is interesting because it you know it's so easy to communicate with people all over the world these days regardless of where you happen to be 
um, yes. due to technology. So was the need to be in London more to do with sort of networking and events and kind of physical get-togethers? Yes, exactly. And, and also, um, I mean, obviously I was a publisher, not a, an agent at that point, but I, I think, you know, the networking for an agent with, with publishers. So ironically, um, the the author interaction for me, you know, over the last five years has always been via via Skype. Um, very few of our authors were actually based in, in London. Um, so that side of things is not new at all to, to me. Um, but it was that feeling that if you were meeting somebody who was based in London, it was just, uh, it just didn't really occur to me or to us or to possibly anyone to have a, a Zoom or a Skype, you'd meet them for a coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that I think was the thing that really, really changed significantly, um, both for me, but I think in, in general perception during lockdown, uh, the fact that you know it was feasible to, in a sense, be, be more efficient, you know, to have meetings with publishers uh, over over Zoom in the same way that I would have done, um, you know, with an author. Yeah, I mean that was going to be my next question, really, because I think if we were having this exact conversation a year ago without COVID being a thing and without us all being encouraged and made to work from home if we can, uh, it's kind of changed the whole context of this because the notion of physically meeting up and big networking events, you know, that doesn't exist currently. Um, And it's, I wonder how that's kind of disrupted or or changed the, the publishing scene that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it changed in, in so many ways. I mean, you know, I think both from within the industry, um, clearly for people working within big companies, like, you know, as I was at Macmillan and Hodder, that cam- that wonderful camaraderie that you have in the office and the way that you can spark off each other and, and get a lot of sort of support and internal mentoring, all of those things that I really benefited from. I mean, I really, really feel for early career uh, entrance in the publishing industry at the moment because you know when I was in my my early 20s at in my first jobs at Macmillan I mean my whole life my social life my work life it really was all about uh, about the job and um, and it was just it was just great fun but more than that the context now that you know 20 odd years later that I am valuing so deeply are many, many of them from from that time, you know, people that I've known for that long who are now sales directors, editorial directors, MDs at, at, at publishing co- companies across the uh, across the industry. So that's a, a big change. Um, and then I think obviously the you know the other thing goes without saying was is is the the sort of the author launches and the the festivals and that opportunity at the other end for the authors to publicize and to market their books in in a personal way. Uh, has obviously changed completely. Um, and of course, it's brilliant, lots of different things. People are being incredibly creative about online festivals and um, different ways of uh, interacting with authors. Um, but certainly from being a small indie publisher, we know how many of our sales were as a direct result of events. Um, and you know, using that excuse to get your signed book uh, is, a, is a sort of a reason to, to, push, um, to push sales. That's obviously very different now. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's a writer that we've worked with uh, a lot who we actually had on the podcast towards the end of 2019, talking about his book that was due to come out in March this year, I think, and mm. that basically did not happen. Um, yeah. And it's now scheduled for this month, which is great. But yeah, it's been such a disruptive year, and you know, for debut novelists who have been building up to this moment for so long, yeah, and then the the rug 
is thoroughly pulled out from underneath all of us. Yeah, completely. You know, it, I mean, it's it's an unrecognisable landscape in many ways, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, um, if we if we do fast forward a bit to this year and the peculiar year it's been, but um, I wanted to talk a bit about the Common People Report uh, and how that kind of came onto your radar and how that influenced you in terms of setting up your own agency. Yes. So the, I mean, how it came into my radar was sitting at my desk, checking the bookseller and book brunch um, newsletters in the morning, as I think people across, <laughs> across the publishing industry do. And, um, you know, there it was, I think in the bookseller in particular, the sort of headline call was for more literary agents to set up outside London. And here I was in my office in Laxfield feeling very much that there was a setup that I was, you know, I already had so I could do it from that side. But then also really being able to to identify with that experience of authors who um, who have had difficulty, you know, not just finding an agent, but finding agents inaccessible or unnecessarily secretive or, or just finding the whole process um, really convoluted. Um, and And I think it's something that really bothered me for a while. I think possibly from the experience of, of uh, a small independent publisher um, obviously we you know we did acquire from agents but the I, this sort of snobbery I think that exists sometimes in in the agenting world I could see uh, I could see so much in that common people report um, that, that chimed with my own experiences yeah. So at this point, you were already based in Suffolk. Yes. That, yeah. that was where you were living and presumably doing a fair bit of commuting into London, um, as you've been describing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it was so I mean, I think in terms of sort of setting up up the agency, um, I've been thinking about agenting, uh, you know, as something that I could do. And really, for me, it's partly because I think I'm I think the the way that the publishing industry was sort of, you know, a few decades ago where an author stayed with one publisher for their career and you built this long-term relationship with your editor. And, you know, I know of, obviously some authors do stay with, with a publisher for the duration of their career. But that's the side, I think, of publishing that really appeals to me, working with an author from, you know, hopefully very early on in their career and, and building up a, a long-term relationship and supporting them through um, through the development uh, of, of that sort of literary career really appealed to me. So, you know, there, this call then for agents to set up outside London, I thought, well, let's let's give it a go. Um, and uh, the timing was really good for me. I, as part of my um, never-ending PhD, um, <laughs> I'm at UCL. Um, at UCL, there's a, uh, a business, an enterprise and skills um, unit, and they, they run schemes to to help people set up businesses and so they're, they're normally in person face-to-face um uh, courses of six i can't remember if it's six weeks or eight week course and uh, this one was running uh, every tuesday five till seven um on you know and rather than having to to be in london at that time which i just wouldn't have been able to do with children and other commitments mm. um it was quite feasible for me to do that via microsoft teams um so i i signed up for this course and work through a business plan and a pitch um, and as part of that process um, I thought it might be a good idea to get myself a mentor I'm a huge believer in mentoring and I've been a mentor myself and benefited from mentoring uh, throughout my career um, and 
uh, you know, I, whilst I've worked closely with authors on the editorial side and I've sold rights and, uh, you know, worked on contracts, I've never actually been an agent. So I just thought it would be great to sort of check this out um, and asked Isabel Dixon at Blake Friedman if she would mentor me. And she she very, very kindly agreed, despite how busy and how many commitments she has. <laughs> um, and that was a, a just a really very um, productive um, relationship which culminated at the end of the six six week course um, in her asking if I would like to set up under the Blake Friedman umbrella, um, which is which is what we've done. So it, it you know I'm, I'm it, again it wasn't something that I'd particularly thought about doing setting up in association with somebody. But the more we talked, um, I was looking for somebody who would help me with uh, foreign rights and contracts. This it's nice that we can all sort of support each other. Um, and then, uh, that, you know, and then we, we've, we've set up in this way. So it's, it feels lovely. So although I'm, uh, you know, I'm at arm's length, it does feel really nice to have, uh, have this association and, and to have, uh, have colleagues. Yes, exactly. Um, not just you on your own doing this. Exactly. <laughs> Especially at the moment when we're all, we are all stuck at home, you know, having, having a, a, a network and a team of people that you can kind of talk to is so critical. Yes. And actually, I should say also that the the big help for me was also as I was setting up the agency was to get together an advisory board. Um, And I mean, this was it was really just that I realized that um, sort of what you said about about just having having colleagues and having people to just run things by. So um, there's just, you know, I got this little network of people together who were just really, really generous with their their time and their expertise really in, in different areas. So there's, you know, there's, there's sort of writers and uh, and professionals on there who have really been incredibly supportive. Um, and then on the day that we, we did launch the agency last week, we had a little Zoom launch, which was really <laughs> lovely to feel that I wasn't sitting at home by myself uh, celebrating with a cup of tea. You know, it was nice to have uh, other people just uh, just online to, to sort of um, to mark the occasion. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to feel a slight sense of anticlimax, isn't it, when, when yeah. everyone's working from home and yes. as you are sitting in your study, absolutely nothing changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Simon. Yeah, exactly. And presumably all the setup up for this and preparing for you know the launch it's all happened during lockdown because um, mm-hmm. the common people report was came out start of the year and uh, presumably everything you've been working on has, has happened co- coincidentally at the same time as as all the covid stuff i was wondering how much that changed what you might have originally planned to do um i'm not sure it changed things enormously for me but the the thing that it really clarified for me was wanting to work with local um businesses so f- uh, in terms of my sort of own uh, f- for the company itself so um for example getting my website built i'm really keen to to support local businesses in suffolk um it you know having made such a big thing about this being a suffolk based agency um so i had this fabulous web designer and actually ironically we we didn't meet at all even though she's literally just down the road <laughs> um but you know and i think perhaps you know in normal times we would have had a cup of coffee to sort of kick things off um but but just the very fact that she was local she really really got what I was trying to do and capture. Um, and I, you know, I think very successfully on, on my website, she's just been able to, to, to do that. So that was, 
you know, something I was very keen on. And then the same for PR, um, another um, a local uh, woman who set up her own PR agency uh, in Suffolk, um, who actually I met at a, a lit festival that I'd organised or helped to organise in our village pub last year. Um, she was uh, doing PR for a, a local author um, and you know, she was sort of in my mind. So, so that's been brilliant because I'm, I'm really, really keen on supporting businesses um, owned both by women and locally. So, so they, I guess they were the things that, I mean, it, it wasn't different because of COVID, but it really just made me think, you know, I don't want to be working with people in London in, at this point because I, I don't want to be going there and, and be, I'm keen to support the, the local infrastructure. Yeah. It's slightly undermine the purpose of what you're trying to yes, achieve. Yes. Yes. But it was interesting because I think, again, it, it, I mean, it sounds so obvious now I say it, but you know, lots of people said, oh, I can recommend a good person to build a website. So it was a, con- you know, I, I did have to have the conscious thought as it were to, um, to do that. And, and again, I think this is where this, this, um, uh, course at um, at UCL came in useful was that by actually just writing it all down in a business plan, it, it made me focus, you know, on what my aims were, what my mission was, why I felt I was sort of, you know, why there was a need for the business. I, I suppose. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about that mission and the the specific aims that you you have in mind and and the areas that you're kind of specialising in because looking on the website uh, something that immediately caught my attention was that you are looking to provide representation for authors in Norfolk and Suffolk and also Africa and the Middle East. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and I, I really love the fact that it's a bit unconventional. So um, I think possibly that's why I felt more comfortable doing my own. Uh, setting up my own business rather than trying to pitch myself to someone else because it's not immediately obvious that that those fit together um and yet for me they're they're absolutely you know 50 percent 50 percent my my interest you know I, I, you know my own reading interest the the authors that um i'd like to work with i mean i mean it really is as one as much as the other um, so in terms of the agency itself, and that for me was a very strong commitment to North, Norfolk and Suffolk um, because of the lack of, of other agents in the region. I mean, it does seem to me still extraordinary, um, you know, particularly as, as you well know, Simon, you know, given Norwich's profile with mm. the UEA, with your National Centre for Writing, the UNESCO City of Literature, all the translation work that's going on, that, that there's not more you know, we're not agents locally. It's, you know, we have really wonderful independent publishers um, and great, you know, now um, increasing number of, of bookshops in the area as well, but but not the agenting side. And then in Suffolk, you know, there are just so many fantastic authors. And I think this is something that I really wasn't aware of until doing this lit fest in our, in our village here in Laxfield, um, in which I worked in really close cooperation with the Halesworth Bookshop, um, wonderful um, Abby Clements that runs the bookshop shop there um just had this whole network of, of authors w- within about you know 20 minutes of, of laxfield um, so you know we were able really quite quickly to organize this uh program with some just brilliant authors all of whom live locally and i just thought well you know and some of them were, were you know well-established um authors um you know melissa harrison and, and lucy hughes hallett um and people who you know are obviously well well into their careers but you know the I was thinking, you know, for people starting out locally, it seems bonkers for, for authors to have to go, if even if not physically, but to have to be represented by an agency in London. Yeah, I mean, there's such a concentration of talent in the region. Yeah. Um, but yeah, presumably at a certain point, 
in all their careers, they then have to kind of make this pilgrimage yes yes and i and i think also you know we were talking earlier about the uncertainty i think you know that pilgrimage perhaps wasn't such a big deal in the past um but you know but now in, not least in terms of travel i mean does does feel a little bit more um more out of reach perhaps than it, you know certainly than it was it was a, a year ago or so um so you know there's perhaps you know even even more reason for being being here physically so yeah so that was that was a big part of of my commitment um and then this sort of you know as i say you know my my um interest really in sort of underrepresented uh authors um and you know it's quite a, the category of you know what is an underrepresented author um i deliberately made it uh, not not more than that on in the press release and whatever and it's been really interesting authors who've been writing to me sort of self-identifying as as you know, underrepresented or, or needing perhaps additional support. So I've been really, really clear, and I've you know, especially on the website about saying I really want to support authors with childcare or other caring responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big thing for me because through my own experience working with authors, I've absolutely seen uh, how tricky it can be to find that that time and that space to write. But also, you know, just the lack of support still. There is at literary festivals or at events for authors, particularly, you know, of whom there are many authors who are perhaps single parents or or sole carers during the week. Um, You know, this is a thing that that the publishing industry is way behind on still. Um, So that was, you know, it's far far easier for an agent to lobby on behalf of an author than for the author to do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, everything that's happened in 2020 has not made childcare any easier you know, for things mm-hmm. being kind of compounded in, in complexity and uh, the, the notion of, you know, when people are at work or not at work and whether the kids can be looked after in ways that they might have been in the past, you know, it's all yes. trickier. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm also really keen at some stage to sort of have a look at the idea of residencies for, for authors with children. I mean, I've, I've supported a number of, uh, of authors I know who have been um, sort of looking to do applications for residencies. So I'm, I'm quite well aware of the number of opportunities there are for writers, um, both here in the UK, but internationally. And, you know, they are amazingly wonderful opportunities for writers to get away and to write. But of course, they you know, it's not everybody that can take a month off or six weeks off to go and hide away in a, a castle in Italy. <laughs> um, so I'm really keen at some point to perhaps look at that a bit more and to see if there's ways of setting up more residencies for authors with responsibilities and whether that's just a residency that provides childcare in the day so an author can write. Because I think we have this idea of a residency about you know an author having to be alone for six weeks to complete their novel um but actually sometimes i think it's it's just being away from responsibilities it's a way of being away from needing to load the dishwasher every night or to cook dinner every night uh, not necessarily away from from people or, or from family so there's there's perhaps something to be explored there at a later date no absolutely and i mean this might be an obvious question, but I, you know, why is it that at festivals, for example, uh, you know, provision for childcare is is traditionally been so poor? What what is it that's led to that? So, I mean, I can only talk about my own experience with uh, authors who've had uh, childcare um, needs at festivals. But um, you know, really, you know, one of the biggest UK festivals, we had two authors, I and mean, they've been very supportive. We had two authors who. Um, had 
uh, one's a single parent and one is um, co-parents, but d- at this point had the majority of, of the childcare, both with children under two. Um, one author was coming from Liberia. Um, the, the other one was in the UK, but didn't have um, family support here. Um, and when I asked the festival what the provision was for childcare, um, they said that that uh, normally the publisher the publishers provide it or or the wife comes along <laughs> and um you know and it was just one of those those moments where I, I just really had to sort of take a deep breath and think okay I, I'm sure this is not a policy this is just a situation that has arisen because nobody has has challenged before mm. um and it's really quite easy when you sort of backtrack to see how it arises when you when you're a big company when I was at Macmillan or when I was at Hodder we'd have probably just found some budget to cover childcare or um you know i think possibly i mean i'm not saying this is always the case but i think if you've got lots and lots of authors you can put forward perhaps it's easier to put forward authors that don't have responsibilities that it's easier to to put forward somebody that can just go and you don't have to think about Mm. um the childcare aspect but at that point when i was with cassava republic there was just no way that we could afford a, a budget to to cover a hotel cost or or babysitting costs for for an extra person um and i you know i think the other thing is that sometimes it's up to the publisher you know, the, the sort of um, inferences that if the publisher's going there, perhaps the publisher could look after the child. But if, if I'm going, particularly at Cassava, when I was paying for myself to go to a festival, I'm going there to be with the author and to, to tweet and to try and do as much as possible to support the author, not to, you know, not to be the babysitter, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually the festival were incredibly responsive when I wrote to the director and explained the situation. Um and he he sort of phoned right away and said that this is definitely you know this is just something that hasn't arisen before and um, we're going to develop a childcare policy and, and they ca- indeed covered the childcare for that year, but it's it it just I I couldn't quite believe that I was the first person to to have asked this question, um, and I think it's it's for me the the. Um, festivals and the events that I have done with authors who have had young children have been amongst the most <laughs> wonderfully inclusive um, events that I've ever done in my entire career. We had this brilliant example of, of a UK-based author who, um, a, 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 um, in fact, it was an LGBT um, youth um, organisation up in Sheffield uh, called Say It, um, who had invited this author to come up. Uh, to do a launch they called it the launch in the north for the um for her book and she had uh, a young child at that point I think perhaps about two perhaps even a bit younger um and they really um thought about this and they invited um in fact I went up with with the author and her child so I actually did did look after the child during the launch but the launch was um in a big hall I was at the back of you know the back of um back of the hall there were lots of students there were members of the public and we were met at the station and it was just so brilliantly thought through and the whole event was so inclusive and you know it was quite a big deal was made about having the having the child at you know at the event and wasn't this wonderful and it was the whole thing was just brilliant so I think it's you know it's not that I want to do it just because it needs to be done but also because it can really add you know it can really add to to event and of course not every event it's not always appropriate but there's no reason why it should be an impediment no yeah as you say it just takes a little bit of thought sometimes and the, the temptation can always be to go the easy route you know as you said putting people up or booking people who don't have those requirements but the problem then of course is that 
you're baking in this exclusionary attitude from the very start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think it's you know sometimes it is just about highlighting uh, highlighting the issues, um, and you know, and also there's uh, for me I think there's a commercial imperative there as well that if I take on an author who I think is really good and I want to be with you know whilst they complete the sort of ten or twelve novels that they're going to write during the course of their career. The, the more support that they can get for childcare or other, you know, it's not just, it's, it might be other caring responsibilities, the more productive they're going to be, um, you know, the more it works commercially. So, so there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's also a commercial argument there as well to, to try to, to make it work. Yeah. It's again, going back to this year and working from home, I think everyone's been forced to slightly rethink the kind of the, the boundaries of, mm. of family life, obviously. Yes. And, you know, the, uh, at the start of lockdown, you saw a lot of stories where, you know, kids were invading the parents' business Zoom <laughs> sessions. And yeah. it feels like the reporting at the start of the year was that was along the lines of, oh, this is so embarrassing. And yeah. then that slowly shifted into people thinking it's actually quite pleasant and quite nice yeah. to see. Yeah. And, and I think also that, um, I mean, this is one of the, going back um, to talking about sort of my my commitments and my, my aims with the agency, is when I'm talking about being open and accessible, um, I guess I mean that in a number of different ways. But one of the things is that, you know, if I'm talking to an author, I'm just another person. I'm not this sort of agent in some ivory tower that somebody needs to sort of feel they need to impress in any way. So if, you know, if an author is at home and a two-year-old comes in, just put the put the child on the lap. I mean, it's not mm. a big deal, you know, and I think you're right, Simon, I think that, that hopefully this, this has become um, more accepted over time. Uh, <laughs> We, we will see. I think time will tell. <laughs> yes, who knows um, what's going to shake out at the end. At the yeah, moment. exactly. Um, yeah. In terms of underrepresentation and, uh, you know, trying to address that, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, where do you even start, especially, you know, as a, as a, as a new agent? Um, how do you go about trying to kind of, you know, make, make inroads on, on that thorny issue that is you know, going to yeah. going to be pernicious and it's not going to be easily fixed, but what, what are the kind of steps you can take? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, um, this has been an area where I, you know, I felt it's, it's been easier for me than I might've anticipated. So, so honestly, even just mentioning the words underrepresented in my press release and in, in the press coverage that's then gone out. And I, mean, I think I, I have it somewhere on the website, but um, the message just, just seems to have got across really, um, really quickly. So lots, I've had, I don't know, maybe about 60 submissions so far. Um, this is in less than a week now. And lots of the covering letters were, you know, oh, I was so pleased to see you mentioning, uh, you know, that you're you're looking f- to represent authors who are perhaps underrepresented. And then people will then define that in the way that they, they feel that they are. So, um, I mean, that's, that's been incredibly um, a real boost for me, I think, to to have that recognized i mean i think the on that very first day when i sent out the press releases on uh, to the bookseller and book brunch i think within about sort of five or ten minutes of the uh, announcements going out on book brunch and the bookseller um i received an email in fact i received two emails the first was from somebody who grew up in laxfield uh, and <laughs> spent the first 20 years of her life in Laxfield. Um, and then the second was from somebody who said that they were querying me because they were really encouraged by um, my ethos and recognition of the difficulties faced by writers outside London and was somebody who was dyslexic. So an agency with strong editor- 
editorial support um, uh, appeal to them. Uh, and they were also a carer for their, for their mother. So that, that sort of absolutely encapsulated for me the type of author I was trying to appeal to. Um, and I was just really gratified to see that the, the message was getting through. And then I think if we're talking about representation in terms of um, at the moment in the, in the light of the um, Black Lives Matter um, sort of uh, renewed activism around, around Black Lives Matter, uh, I'm again really well positioned there because I've been working with um, African authors for for a number of years now. So ironically, um, <laughs> of all the authors who I'd already, uh, you know, I'd mentioned the agency to a few people, the, the authors who'd already started to contact me, almost all of them were were African writers. Mm. It, it's a really um, amazingly close knit. Uh, circle of writers, um, the African writing community uh, is is just brilliant, and and you know lots of lots of authors have already come my way. So um, that you know, I feel like I'm I'm able to um, to represent um, writers of colour, um, perhaps more not more comfortably than other people, but it's it's not something that feels particularly difficult for me to do. And and again, because I've got the networks, I sort of feel well, I should I should use them. Um, because it's uh, you know it's, it's it's writing that I'm very very interested in writing specifically from Africa, um, so that's sort of another area of interest, um, as as well as those those writers from from Norfolk and Suffolk. Yeah, and having strong representation from an agent like yourself obviously is going to be a massive help to people. But what kind of barriers are there still in the industry that you then have to contend with? You know, once you take on a writer. Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, I, I think, you know, having having authors from underrepresented backgrounds is actually, a, you know, a commercial advantage. Uh, ironically, there's so much interest. I mean, if you, you sort of look at the autumn submissions, uh, you know, or the headlines in the bookseller, the autumn submissions are strong in diverse voices. Um, so say the editors. So I, you know, I think that because hopefully I've got um, people, editors who who will know and trust my judgment. I think I'm relatively well positioned on that front. So I, I, yeah, I feel really, really upbeat about that side of things. Actually, um, you know, I'm sure there will be publishers that won't be keen to to take certain authors, but that's the whole point of being an agent that you hopefully know who to submit to. Um, and, you know, th- this is all part of the continued discussion with different publishers and, and finding out their tastes and their interests. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect that you, you've touched upon earlier, and but you mentioned it on the website significantly, is is the notion of agenting being this kind of secret, closed thing that is quite difficult to navigate, especially obviously for, for new authors. Um, I was wondering, you know, why, why is there that perception? Um, and is it a true perception? Um, and yeah. what do you kind of, what do you, what do you hope to do to address that from your end? Yeah, I honestly don't know why it's there. I mean, I think, I mean, it's definitely, it definitely does exist. I mean, the, as we t- talked about earlier, the, the common people uh, report really identified this as a, as a factor, but also just talking anecdotally to people, yeah, you know, the agent is still often seen as this, this sort of uh, person up in their ivory tower who is the tastemaker and the gatekeeper. And to be honest, I think there are I mean, I should say there are a large number of really wonderful, really open agents. But nevertheless, there are agents that I've certainly come across in the last couple of years who absolutely play into that 
stereotype. Um, or, uh, agents, for example, who have told me they would never submit to um, a small indie publishing company because why would they bother? Mm. Um, you know, and uh, so I can I can really see why authors feel that that stereotype is there, why that image uh, sort of pervades and persists. But th- there's there's just no reason. I mean, I think perhaps also there are there are some agents. This may be less the case now, who perhaps quite like the idea of this sort of um, the idea that their their stable is sort of the best of the best, and this sort of if you're in, you're in, and if you're not, you're not. You know, it's it's been seen as something that that is perhaps deliberately cultivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there's just no need for it because when you, you know, so for example, on, on my website, I've made a point of putting my standard contract on the, uh, on the website, because when you actually go through and you compare terms and look at the different, you know, if you go through the, on the sort of writers and artists, uh, yearbook, um, pretty much everybody offers the same terms in terms of commission. There might be a few differences, but I just thought, well, why just not be open about it? Um, and then hopefully encourage other, others to do the same because it just it, again it's just a really easy way of of um, counteracting some of the secrecy around. And then I think you know being able to point authors um, in in the direction of resources that can help. I mean, so you know, indeed you know some of the resources that you have on on the the writers' toolkits and things that you have on the National Centre for Writing website. There's loads of those sorts of places that you can direct authors. Absolutely. Um... What I thought we could do to to wrap up a little bit is to kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of of what you are looking for mm. in writers um, and in their work. So, um, could you give us like your your kind of uh, your pitch for the kind of thing that you're looking for, if if that's possible? Uh, yes. Um, so, I think in terms of um, the the local writing. So, I, I really very much like. Um, so if I'm t- talking about specifically at this point, writers from Norfolk and Suffolk, the sort of nature writing, um, travel writing, creative nonfiction um, that comes from authors um, like Roger Deakin or Melissa Harrison. I mean, they are, they're real favourites of mine. Um, uh, you know, authors where you feel you're in jolly good company uh, when you're reading their works, that they're, they're sort of talking to you and, and sort of observing things as you go along. So I really like that, that style of writing. Um, so there's, there's, there's that side of things. But then more generally, um, I'm looking for literary fiction, um, commercial fiction. I mean, probably not so much on the, the fantasy or, or sci-fi side. Um, but at the moment on the website, I've deliberately left, uh, left things very open because I, it's very interesting for me as a, as a new agent to just see what comes in. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the sorts of um, uh, uh, sort of literary fiction um, that I'm looking for. Are, uh, I'm just looking down here, the sorts of things that I've just been reading. I've got uh, Jennifer McCombie's book here. I've got The Diary of a Young Naturalist. Uh, I've got An African in Greenland. That's just the ones on my desk. So they're, they're the sorts of things that I'm reading at the moment. So my, my tastes are very, uh, very eclectic, um, definitely on the, on the more sort of literary side, but I'm very open to commercial and crime fiction as well. At what point, and I guess this is kind of advice for anyone looking, thinking about getting an agent generally, but um, for new authors, at what point 
should they be getting in touch with agents and getting in contact with you? I mean, for me, at the point that they've got a, a properly polished manuscript, I, mean, I don't know if that's what everybody would say, but if I'm reading a synopsis in the first three chapters and I'm hooked, I want to read the whole thing straight away. Um, I, you know, for me, I, I definitely want to have an, uh, an author having a manuscript ready to to submit you know to, to, sorry I definitely want an author to be able to send me the whole thing um straight away and in fact I've already done that with with two or three uh, of the authors that have submitted to me um, I mean it doesn't need to be obviously completely polished but you know I've had a few submissions where oh well, look, I'm having a go I'll probably redraft it but just wanted to send this to you now I mean I don't know if this is the case for all agents but certainly for me I just won't have time to to look at stuff more than once I don't think um, mm -hmm. so, you know, whilst I'm <laughs> emphasizing sort of open and accessible, you know, my openness and accessibility, I don't want that to mean that I want to enter protracted discussions with authors when they're, you know, at very, very early stage. I mean, you know, it, ne it needs to be at a stage that's ready uh, for submission. Yes. Yeah. When, when they can't possibly make it any better, that's when to send it in. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, and I think that's, you know, obviously authors will, will submit to other people as well. So, you know, you want, you know, you want to advise any author to, to give themselves the best shot of getting picked up by, by an agent. Yeah. And what are the first steps? So if, if you hear from an author and it sounds great and the, the manuscript looks good, what are the kind of first steps that you take with, with someone you're either thinking about taking on or, you know, once you've decided that you do want to go that route? Yeah, so um, the sort of two or three uh, authors that I'm talking to already, um, a couple of whom I knew already and reached out to, um, a couple that have come through the submissions inbox, um, would be in, in all cases to have a look at the first three chapters and synopsis of whatever they're writing or in some cases it might be a couple of short stories and then if I feel that the writing is um, the sort of writing that both appeals to me and is of the right you know I think sort of standard or can be worked up to the right standard um, I'll then have a, a zoom chat with an author um, which I've done now with with quite a number of authors and and obviously it's 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 partly about the manuscript that might have been submitted but also about um, the the author themselves, whether we're a good fit, whether they feel I'm right for them as much as I'm feeling that the author is right for me, um, whether I feel I can represent them um, better than somebody else. Um, and and then also what else they've, they've got in store, what, you know, what else they've got up their sleeves. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I would like to represent authors that have more than one book in them, for example. I think sometimes you, you can you know somebody can have a, one wonderful story but if there's nothing if that's it and they don't really want to write anymore then I'm probably less interested mm -hmm. than people that have got ideas for lots of different uh, projects um and also I you know I I really like I had a crime writer the other day I was talking to who also had a, an idea for a non-fiction project so that sort of author appeals to me that I'm not particularly set in any genre so um that's that's also of interest to me when people want to perhaps write more broadly outside a certain genre. Yeah. And I mean, you, you've mentioned it a little bit there in terms of the kind of long-term uh, relationship that you have with an author as an agent. Um, but I was thinking in terms of that kind of transparency you talked about, what, what kind of uh, commitment do you expect from your authors from the, from the other way around? 
Yeah, that's that's a really good question, Simon. I think expectation management is a is a really really big thing. So um, there is one author I've I've actually just taken on, um, although I won't probably announce it for a little while. Um, and there we we had several, you know two-hour conversations, um, partly because uh, they were just really stimulating conversations. Um, but also, I just wanted to be completely clear on both sides what we were signing up for. Um, because particularly with a small agency, although obviously, hopefully, I'll grow in time, but with a small agency, I don't want to take on hundreds of authors. I want to take on a small number of authors that I really feel that I click with and that I feel I can, um, I can sort of help develop their careers in the right direction so you know for me the, the people that I'm talking to already it's when I've read their manuscripts I can absolutely see how I can help how I can um, offer comment um, and, and you know I, I guess I, I get what they're trying to do um, and and for pretty much all of them they're all trying to do something new so that might be that they might be the first author from a particular country to be more widely known um, in, in the case of some of the African authors I'm talking to um, or, or locally here. I mean, you know, even for me, just the other day reading a crime novel set in Ipswich. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, this is, <laughs> this is new to me. Um, I've read a few, but, you know, it's so, so common for me to read books set in London um, that just having stuff based in based locally. Um, so it's also sort of about uh, people doing something new as well. And to celebrate the launch of Laxfield Literary Associates, you're running a couple of prizes, is that right? So there's two prizes. There's the New Anglia Manuscript Prize, which is run in conjunction with the National Centre for Writing, and that's for authors based in Norfolk and Suffolk. And then there's the Laxfield Literary Launch Prize, and that is uh, um, a prize for authors based outside Norfolk and Suffolk. So there's the same criteria for both of the prizes. Um, it's just that I really wanted to have a particular prize for authors in Norfolk and Suffolk um, for launch. Um, they're for unpublished writers, and it's uh, this first competition it's for debut novel manuscripts so it can be any genre um, it should just be unpublished writers who are looking for representation for each prize it's a cash prize of 500 pounds and an offer of representation from me um, so really hoping that um, people will um, take those half-finished manuscripts. Well, I was going to say out of the drawer, but probably out of the file on their <laughs> laptop and, um, and polish them up. Uh, and we also, we've, we've set out quite a long um, time. The deadline's not till the 4th of December. Uh, so we just announced it on the 1st of October. Um, partly because, uh, as you know, next month, November, is the National Novel Writing Month. So I was thinking that that might be a chance for people to, to try, try and um, get a few um, more hours in every day and then polish something up to submit. Um, so entries are coming in already, um, but there's all the information about that is on the website as well. Fantastic. Now, I can imagine you're going to have a lot of reading ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, but I, luckily I do have some fellow judges, so um, that's a comfort. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. So where should people go if they're interested? So um, all the details of the agency are on the website, which is um, www.laxfieldliterary.com. Uh, so this, the submissions information is on there. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Emma. Oh, well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Simon. Thanks to Emma for a brilliant chat. And if you'd like to gain further insight into what agents do, how they find and work with their authors, as well as gaining some top tips for submitting your manuscripts to agents, we've got just the thing. So we 
regularly run workshops called Agent Insight Sessions. And we've got one coming up next month, Saturday, the 28th of October. We will be joined online in the morning by Emma Patterson. And Emma works for Aitkin Alexander Associates. And she represents writers across literary fiction, nonfiction and poetry, including Bernadine Ivaristo, who was the recent Booker Prize winner. So Emma will be with us over Zoom and she will be sharing all of her really invaluable knowledge about what it's like to be an agent, what she's looking for from writers, the best way to pitch yourself to an agent, and basically all of the inner workings of the publishing world that you'd like to know. We've got limited places for this workshop, but it is taking place online, so it means that you can sign up from anywhere in the world. Um, Head over to the website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, and click Workshops and Tutored Courses under the Courses tab to find out more. If you have any questions about that or anything else we do, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. Check out our Facebook page. Find us on our Discord community, the link to which can be found down in the show notes, or indeed over on the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you can also sign up to our lovely newsletter that goes out every week. Thanks again. Keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode. (laughs) 